0: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Stonefield Vineyards with Bill Windover. It's uh, September 27th, 2019. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, Let's start with the most important question, which is why grapes? Why wine?
1: Well, when I came home from Vietnam, I had the GI Bill available. So I went to college and got a degree in business management with a major in transportation and distribution. And ended up working for the Santa Fe Railway in charge of pricing freight going eastbound transcontinentally. So I got to talk to all the wineries every single day. Got to know all their traffic managers, their distribution managers. Went out and visited with them. And it perked my interest. So I started going to Santa Rosa Junior College night school, taking viticulture and oenology classes. Uh, Rich Thomas was my viticulture instructor and Stu Smith was my oenology instructor. Along um, about 1984, the Santa Fe really thought they were gonna send me to Chicago with a promotion. And I said, I'm taking a promotion to Oregon. I'll see you around. <laughs> we had bought this property in the mid-70s. I talked my wife into as an investment. I wanted to plant grapes on it from day one. <laughs> and my father and mother decided to move in here, and they lived just down the street. So we put a recording thermometer out here on the property, got the local records, and we met uh, Chuck and Susie David, who owned Siskiyou Vineyards, and of course, Ted and Mary Gerber who owned Forest Vineyards. And that got us rolling, and within the year, I was up at the Cool Climate Seminar in Eugene, and I met Bob and Lilo Caravan, who had started Bridgeview Winery, and they hired me as their vineyard manager. And I worked for them close to 17 years, and at the age of 55 I decided I didn't want to work for somebody else, just myself. So I retired from Bridgeview and my good friend Ted Gerber took advantage of that and immediately <laughs> hired me to be a vineyard consultant for all the vendors <laughs> he was buying grapes from. So that turned out to be like a second career for me, going around to all those vendors at least five times a year, the critical points at Bloom and at Verizon and checking their spray programs and just helping out wherever I could. And of course taking samples and bringing them back to the winery. And <clears throat> he has since then uh, stopped buying a lot of grapes from the contract because he's expanded his own estate vineyard. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have as many vineyards to go around to visit, so I occasionally do some work for him now. <laughs> but that frees up a lot of things for me to do around here that I want to do. About 35 years, this time to replace fencing. And, there's no end to the list of projects that I've entered. Not <course>. enough hours, <laughs> of course. But that's kind of where we're at and how we arrived here. And my brother also retired here, so our whole family ended up here in the Illinois Valley. We were originally from Southern California, and when I made the move to the Bay Area to go to school, it was right after I met my wife. I met her in the army. Mm-hmm. It was her first day in the army. And I took her out to Mexican food. She never had Mexican restaurant food before. <laughs> and nine months later, we got married. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So the whole family ended up here, and I was the only one that got involved with the grapes. But over the years, we've had... Oh, good gosh. I can't remember the exact number of vineyards, but it's up around 19 vineyards here in the Illinois Valley. Since then, a lot of them have been abandoned. Some of them have been derelict, uh, some have been ripped out for other crops. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're into second generation people now. Um, Wally the Flame, who sold us Grapes of Bridge Unit at, at Forest Winery for years, passed on. And his son has kind of gone into a different direction. And then we had Bob Worden over at Villanovia, who passed on early. And his wife uh, has been running that vineyard continuously. And then we had Gary Garnett, who put in a vineyard. And he fought brain cancer and beat it. Mm-hmm. And decided that it was just too much, and he ended up selling and moving to southern Arizona. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Bob Caravan passed here a few years ago, and his son, stepson Renee Eichmann, is now in charge over there, and Lilo still lives on the property. Um, that's about all the old guys. <laughs> uh, Deer Creek Vineyard has now changed hands. We just have a new uh, grower move in there. I believe he's selling to Erath, and I just talked to him for the first time on the phone yesterday. I haven't really met him yet. Mm-hmm. And then Wally <laughs> Flame had a brother, Bob La Flame, who had La Flaming Grape Vineyard, <laughs> <laughs> and he passed on. So his wife sold out, and now there's a new three-generation family in there. They call it Earthsong Vineyard now, mm-hmm. and they have their own bottle and label. Mm-hmm. And Deer Creek has come out with their own bottle and label. and at one time, we had Wynn Ridge mm-hmm. that had their label. That's right down here across from the, one of the big hemp farms. And a fellow down in California, a fellow named Dick Braden, who's a grower of almonds, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's bought a lot of property here in the valley, several big-size vineyards. And he is, I think he's the only one that started harvesting so far this year. He's got a mechanical harvesting machine which takes a lot of pressure off us little guys. We hire all the local people. Mm -hmm. And As more and more vineyards got established, it was not a fight, but you kind of protected your pickers list. You didn't give out name and numbers. Mm -hmm. And so now when the machine came in, it freed up a lot of people to come picking my vineyards. (laughs) Uh, Ted Gerber has been a tremendous help for me. And when I moved here, everybody called him the grape guru. And I said, you're not the grape guru I am. (laughs) So we've been having fun with that over the years. (laughs) And, of course, Chuck and Susie David uh, were a big help in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But things have changed. Back then, we were in the wide spacing. Everybody's used to big tractors. And we're usually around 500 grapevines per acre. So when I went to work for Bridgeview, I'd already planted 12 by uh, eight out here, Mm -hmm. which is what I was used to in Sonoma County. And I saw that narrow-space vineyard like they did in Germany, and I saw four times the number of grapevines. And I said, that's got to be more, more quantity, and we can keep the quality up. So as the next year came, we put a row between every row out there and a plant between every plant and doubled up and quadrupled up the number of plants in the vineyard. And Porter Lombard, who was up at Oregon State University at the time, put me on a committee, a program committee for the Horticultural uh, Society meeting. And one, way, one day in a meeting, program meeting, trying to establish what we wanted to put on for the, this that particular year, I said, I'm getting tired. of Everybody got their head in the, in the grapevines, in the leaves, in the canopy. I said, why don't we look underneath the ground once in a while? He says, you're the guy. You're talking about it. So I ended up giving a speech on High-density planting way back in 1989, when nobody was doing it, except for, of course, Bridgeview Bob and Lila Caravan were doing it. And now, as I look around the state, everybody's doubled up, and they still haven't got as narrow as six in this valley. We've come down to eight, but I've seen plantings up north on meter by meter, mm-hmm. and it's quite common nowadays. I'm not saying that I got something started. But it was interesting to be on the ground floor of that, and the questions when you start, when I started, to quit giving the speech, there was dozens of people wanting to know what about this, what about that, you know. It's twice as costly to establish, twice the amount of water, wire, twice as many posts, mm-hmm. so it's not something for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you had an established vineyard, you didn't really want to. I was lucky because I was one year old. I had, I didn't have, two age vines growing at the same time. They're all the same age basically. So that's pretty much the highlight of what I've done around here.
0: <laughs> I, think, I think that starting the high-density movement makes you the grape grower, though. I think you can hold that over Ted, at least. until 8 by 4 You're, you're the grape. <laughs> exactly. I think that's, I think that's the tiebreaker. Tell me about the, the property. You mentioned that you, you talked your wife into investing here before you actually lived here. What, why here? What was it about this area that attra- attracted you?
1: I was interested in buying in the Guerneville area of Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. Too expensive. And then I said, well, let's go look at the Anderson Valley. They grow beautiful Pinot Noir there. And I was a Gewurztraminer lover. They got great Gewurztraminer there. And that was too expensive. And of course, we came up Highway 101 constantly along the Yule River. It was, it was paradise for us living in the Bay Area you to get out in the woods and fishing and all that. So one year, we came all the way up through the canyon and came into this valley and met Chuck and Susie and Ted. And I said, they're growing grapes here. It was just getting started. And it wasn't—I wasn't sure we were going to be able to pull it off. So that's why—and the other thing, I had to save some money to do it. So it gave us a few years to watch Chuck and and Ted and and how they did, and they were progressing just fine. Mm -hmm. So I told Ruth, it was time to move here, it's no longer an investment, we're moving here. Then we tried to come up with a name, and this is Elder Mountain, and I don't want Elder View or Elder Berry or Elder anything. (laughs) And the creek we're on is Althouse Creek. That sounds too much like outhouse, so I didn't want Althouse Creek vinegar. <laughs> and so we were out there throwing rocks out of the way, and I said, God, there's so many stones out here. Why don't we call it stone fields? <laughs> so it stuck. perfect. <laughs>
0: Uh, tell me about the the, the process of, of you, you mentioned going to school, going to Santa Rosa and, and learning uh, viticulture knowledge. Tell about the process of actually b- b- growing grapes the first time, planting growing grapes the first time, especially in a, in a place like this with stones in the field. What were some of the challenges you ran into in, in, in the start?
1: Uh, we broke a lot of post diggers with rocks. <laughs> rocks broke a lot of stakes pounding them in. Um, my big mistake was is I was going to plant the entire field to pre- reverse terminer. And at the last minute, the local guys talked me into diversifying a little bit. So I decided I'll go half and half. And as I learned about what was going on with the Lambeth of the valley, that was the big market at the time. Of course, it still is. But <clears throat> I decided, well, maybe we'd better plant Pinot noir. So we ended up with eight rows of reverse demeanor, and the rest of the field was Pinot noir. And as time went on and things became more and more successful and financially stable, we, added, we ended up with not just five acres here, but 30 acres here. And we put in another block of, of grapes, and it's 100% Pinot Gris. And that's on some really nice ground. It was real easy to put that vineyard in compared to our little Stonefield vineyards. <laughs> but the uh, Pinot Gris has done real well in our valley because there's are such a cold area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm down around 2,300 heat units, and it's, it's enough to ripen Pinot and, and Pinot Gris, but I taste Pinot Gris from a hot site, and I don't like it as well as I do from a cold, cool site. And I'm glad I went that route because there was so much Pinot Noir being planted. Which we go through these cycles about every 10 years. There's too many grapes, not enough tanks. Too many tanks, not enough grapes. And right now we're in that cycle maybe we've got way too much Pinot Noir planted, especially here in Southern Oregon. You know, it's the biggest grape we have planted down here. Everybody thinks about all the 70 different varieties we can grow, but the vast majority of it is Pinot Noir. I'd like to see more diversification in the other varieties because we can do it. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily here in the Illinois Valley. We are definitely cool climate. Mm-hmm. But as you go, I put in a 90-acre vector in, a, in the Applegate Valley for Bridgeview. Enough, enough, <laughs> enough. Go! And, uh, I was able to put in grapes I never thought I'd ever grow, it. Syrah, mm-hmm. and Merlot, and Cabernet Sauvignon, and it was interesting, that's how I got into other varieties, and then all of a sudden everybody started talking about climate change, you know, over the last 10-15 years, and I'll be darned if it really hasn't changed in my vineyard. I've got 19 different varieties out there in experiments that I make homemade wine out of. Cabernet ripens here now. Merlot ripens here now. Syrah ripens here now. Whereas before, once in five years maybe one of them would get ripe. Mm-hmm. And it was just a eye-opening, eye-opening situation for me. But then, you know, like I'm going to turn 73 and on Monday. I'm not going to expand anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking about downsizing, you know, but all those properties of Gone to other people now, so I've lost track of what they're doing. I planted a Cabernet block up on the top ridge of the Applegate Valley, Stargazer Vineyard, that I hadn't seen in 15 years. And Ted took, uh, asked me to take his new winemaker over there to introduce him. I've never seen the guy or met the guy, so we went over and got to see that vineyard since it was a tiny mm-hmm. little plants, and I was just flabbergasted. So there's still a lot of things that surprised me. Uh, been around here long enough that I've, I've got to know everybody. In 1989, I was president of the or- Oregon Wine Growers Association Rogue Valley Chapter. Mm-hmm. And we could hold a meeting in a small room. There was so few of us. Mm-hmm. And now you go to the Extension Service office and the auditorium is full. It's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, in the old days of hardship, through, you couldn't find a narrow tractor for narrow spacing. You had to drive forever to go find post or pipe. Or, fencing here. It just wasn't available here locally. Mm -hmm. We had one small little building supply here in town. So that's all this increase in population and increase in the industry has really helped that out a lot. Mm -hmm. We have local people that supply us with wine-making equipment now. We have local people with agriculture. We have mechanics that know how to take care of stuff that they weren't used to. Spray rigs and mechanical harvesters. Mm -hmm. And all that's come along now over the years. So even though it's Getting to the point where you don't know everybody, and it's hard to know any, everybody, but it's nice to have service. <laughs> you know, I used to drive to Eugene. and I used to go, go up north a lot. Oregon Vineyard Supply was... Where was that originally in that town? They weren't in McLeanville. It was a town just north of there. Newberg. Yeah. Pardon me? Newberg. Was it Newburgh? No.
0: Uh, Carlton, Yamhill?
1: No. Lafayette.
0: Oh, Lafayette. Okay. And
1: yeah, I remember when... <clears throat> They opened that business. I rented a U-Haul truck here and drove all the way up there and bought all my impost, all my wire, all my ink, everything to put in a vineyard. And when I walked in that place, I had anybody here. <laughs> they had one guy out in the back, he was riddling champagne bottles. <laughs> he was so busy with the bottle he didn't hear us get rid. And we filled that truck up and came home and started the vineyard. And for years we'd go with a truck up north. Not anymore. Oregon Vineyard Supply moved down here.
0: <laughs> uh, tell me about, the, uh, about kind of finding, finding a place for your grapes and for your services in the early days. Obviously, like you said, not a lot of people growing grapes around here. How are you finding people to buy your grapes? How are you finding people to, to hire you as a, as a vineyard manager?
1: I really lucked out. I, when I first came here, I got a job with a fellow named Rife. Uh, Ralph Seltzer, who owned Great Oaks Vineyard, and he was president of the Rogue Chapter at the time. And he put me to work at $2.25 an hour. You know, I just came from a $60,000 a year job. So <laughs> What am I doing here? And he said, I'll give you, we don't have minimum wage in agriculture here in Oregon. And I said, that's true. And he says, well, in 30 days, if you can do what you tell me you can do, I'll give you a raise. 30 days later, he gave me a quarter raise. I said, goodbye. <laughs>
0: Oh gosh! I forgot what your question was about. <laughs> <laughs> about finding people to buy your oh, grapes, and
1: so then I went to talk with Ted, and he was needing someone to pull brush. So I got some part-time work there with him, and learning a few techniques on how to prune and how to brush, and on the style that they were using up here versus the this is cane pruning was new to me because cordon pruning is what they did in Sonoma County. And he didn't have full-time work for me. And that's when the 1984 Cool Climate Seminar came, the very first one. And that's where I met people from Bethel Heights and around town. And that's where I met Bob and Lilo Caravan. And they lived down the street. So when I got home, I went to visit them and they hired me. And within one year, they made me the vineyard manager. And because I was their vineyard manager, my grapes just automatically went to their tanks for all those years. I didn't have to go out and sell grapes at all. Of course, there were years that it was hard to get paid sometimes because the wine had to sell before you could paid. Uh-huh. but at least I had a market. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> since I've left Bridgeview, they didn't have a retirement program, and the owner told me, he says, since we don't have a retirement program, I promise I'll always pay Dock Toliver and always buy your grapes. Well, there was a downturn in the economy, a downturn in the market, and the very next year he couldn't buy my grapes. But he waited until August to tell me. Yeah. And that's really a hard sell, trying to find a buyer in August. And old Mr. Gerber down the road took the grapes that year. And he helped me find uh, markets with the uh, August sellers and Edenville and a couple other places. And then all of a sudden, he was so big he needed my grapes. Hallelujah Hollywood, I'm here back of the valley again. <laughs> I never had to haul much grapes out of the valley, so I've been very fortunate that way. I know a lot of people that get into this business and they they get everything started and they the very first thing they should think about is marketing. They, Come on guys, leave me alone. <laughs> and so many of them they, they wait till the year they have grapes and then they go look for market. Long way. <laughs> That's probably the biggest thing I faced when I was helping new growers is get out there and market them now. Don't wait for them to get on the vine. But back then it was there wasn't much of a market. You know, Valley View was here, Siskiyou was here, Ted was here. Troon had just, no, I don't think, uh, Truna made it. got started back then. I don't think he was first, So Valley View was first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's, yeah, those were the three main wineries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they grew all their own grapes but they didn't really want everything we were growing. So I ended up owning two flatbed trucks because I was hauling grapes out of the valley. (laughs) I was paying more to have grapes hauled than I was getting paid for the grapes. (laughs) It all worked out. I remember going to meetings and, did you make any money this year? Well, no, but we broke even. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) So now what Ruth and I do is we're very fortunate that we make enough money to not only grow the grapes this year, but put money in the budget for next year, so we're always one year ahead, mm-hmm. whereas in the beginning we're out of pocket trying to catch up, trying to get ahead, so mm-hmm. after 35 years we're kind of over that hump. We've we got the budget so we can keep progressing, and now the question is just how much longer do we want to do it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a good friend named Randy Gold, I don't know if you've met him or not, he runs Pacific Crest Vineyard Services. Seems like every time I see him he says, aren't we getting too old for this stuff? <laughs> and we both say no. no <laughs> Go, <not yet. laughs> keep going at it.
0: Uh, Tell me about this place and what's special about it for growing grapes. What, what's, what's the terroir here? What, 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 is, what, what excites you about the grapes you're
1: growing? Uh, as the crow flies, we're probably about 25 miles from the ocean. That takes an hour drive to, to get around to it. But, and that has a tremendous influence on our day and night temperatures. And that's holding our acids which is very important. It's why we can grow good Pinot here and at some places in Southern Oregon they can't because it's just too hot. Their acids drop off and the f- wines become jammy tasting and just a different flavor, <laughs> which I don't care for. But that's the main thing is the marine influence and since farther in and on you go, the Applegate's a little warmer, Bear Creek, Medford a little warmer. So that's why the varieties change. The other thing here is uh, one year I had 29 nights of frost. I was walking around here like a zombie, not getting any sleep. That's what I was saying about climate change, the last few years, two nights, three nights Mm -hmm. and not very cold. Mm -hmm. Um, We do get, our average rainfall here is 62 inches a year, it's like up north. Mm -hmm. I had 115 inches one year, had water standing in the vineyard, four inches deep because there was no place for it to run off, rivers were full. Uh, so water was the second thing. Mm-hmm. I dug a whole six foot deep here when I was looking to buy the property and hit water. I couldn't pump it dry, it was just groundwater. I got a sump over here that's got a, what they call a temperature control water right, just for frost protection. And mm-hmm. I really don't have irrigation rights on that. So we used our well water to get the plants established, whereas on the Pinot Gris block, I got a nine acre pond down there with frost rights, water rights, some irrigation rights. And we got a unique water right in that because water rights were closed here, they, they weren't offering any more new ones, we went up to the watermaster's office in Salem, Water Resources Department, and we developed a new technique. Starting on December 1st of every year through April 1st of every year, we can pump water out of Aldhouse Creek into our pond, because that's not the high fish period. High water period, but there's not a lot of fish activity. So we're not disturbing the water mm-hmm. when the fish are migrating. This is a big area for uh, salmon mm-hmm. migrations, and uh, Pomeroy down, Dam down here in, in town. There's no fishing allowed upstream from that because it's all bedding. You know, that's where the babies are born. Mm-hmm. So getting that water right the way it was set up has been a real boon for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to plant the grapes. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see the wind. Helps us. It seems like every night, every afternoon, we, we get a wind that helps dry out the rain when we have rain events. So I guess it was a combination of being close to the ocean, the climate, the water availability. Uh, all the vendors in this area are planted on the same soils I got, so I knew I didn't have a problem with that. I just like the area. I mean, before maybe 30 years ago, you knew everybody in town. You knew everybody on your neighbors and down the road. Now it's gotten so big you don't hardly know anybody anymore. You're afraid to go anywhere. You're afraid to park your car and leave it anywhere because someone's going to break into it. It's gotten pretty bad. So enough. I'm sorry.
0: It's, it's okay. If they're very. They're very excited to show you what's going on here.
1: I don't know. I guess getting out of the city. Hmm? enough. That's the that's the biggest part of it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see myself living in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I have worked in downtown financial district in San Francisco for ten years for the Santa Fe Railway and commuted on the Golden Gate transit bus na- night and day. And that commute coming home at night was almost two and a half, three hours some night with the traffic. And here, when I first moved here, i drive home from town with my lights off in the middle of the night and never see anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it was great.
0: <laughs> You mentioned earlier some of the some of the other kind of key figures in the area, other key people in the area. Uh, what else? Do you, tell me anything else you want to talk about the the history of wine here in the area. The, the does it go back further than than the, the I mean, when you started, it was just kind of getting started here. Was it was an earlier history than that here? Was, were they growing grapes post prohibition, pre prohibition down here?
1: Well, the Brit Festival you've probably heard of. Britt had grapes here back in the late eighteen hundreds. That's mm-hmm. that's what started it all. Mm-hmm. That's VALLEY VIEW IS ACTUALLY NAMED AFTER ITS VALLEY VIEW mm-hmm. LABEL. BUT THE provision THERE WAS NOTHING HERE. CHUCK AND SUSIE DAVID WERE THE VERY FIRST PEOPLE TO PLANT IN THE ILLINOIS VALLEY, AND FRANK WAS over THE FIRST ONE TO PLANT OVER THERE IN MEDFORD. Mm-hmm. AND IT JUST GREW FROM THERE, IT'S SLOWLY AND SLOWLY. And, uh, I'M SURE I'M LEAVING PEOPLE OUT. JOHN OSTERHOUSE WAS... Should have got a whole list of names here. <laughs>
0: That's okay.
1: Oh, uh, I'm I'm probably forgetting a whole whole bunch of people.
0: It's okay. What were some of the What are some of the unique challenges to the area uh, that that you faced? Was it Was it harder because of location? Was it harder because of soil type? Was it harder because of What, what were the challenges to this area? And it's and it's kind of slow growth.
1: Labor. Labor's always been a, a big challenge. <clears throat> I don't sleep well when harvest starts coming. I'm wondering if I put an ad in the paper four weeks ago. I got two phone calls. Mm. Uh, it's nerve-wracking mm. <laughs> uh, And of course then when marijuana, recreational marijuana became legal and now hemp that's created bigger problems for us as far as labor. Mm. And then of course, when the state started raising minimum wage, that's put a big change in our labor budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's turning around though, I I, I just told you I got two responses to my ad in the paper. I got 20 pickers lined up first Monday. I'd say half of them, a little over half of them, picked 35 years for me. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a group of people that I can count on, but that's not enough to get the whole job done. Mm -hmm. And it's really neat because I got... Mothers down the street wanting to get extra money for school clothes and they come and pick for a few, few days and So things like that work out mm-hmm. and then of course when school's out you got the kids and you get to put them to work <laughs> and We usually have a couple from the high school to come and work for us every summer okay. labor is probably the biggest issue mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there were other problems too, but <laughs>
0: You mentioned that your, your involvement in the, or the, was the Oregon Wine Growers Association Rogue Chapter, was the Oregon Wine Board Rogue Chapter? The, the I,
1: I joined the Rogue Chapter of the Oregon Wine Growers, Wine Growers Association, okay. and after a few years I got elected president to that chapter, which automatically put me on the Oregon Wine Growers Association State Board of Directors, mm-hmm. and I was there for a couple years. <clears throat> and then in 1989, <clears throat> excuse me, February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, we were up at the Horticulture Society meeting in Portland, and Dick Erath got up and said, Everybody better home. The Arctic Express is coming. We were minus 7 one night, the next night minus 8, and the next night minus 9. Oh this vineyard was killed to the ground. But we were not on rootstocks because of phylloxera. And <clears throat> we self-root, We planted self rooted vines because we thought we were phylloxera-free. It wasn't in the state yet. And it turned out to be a blessing, because all I had to do was retrain new trunks up from those roots. And we got back into production in 1990, barely got a small crop off, and December 20th and 21st it hit minus four two nights in a row. Knocked us again. And then two years later, 1992, we had plus four two nights in a row, the same two nights, December 20th and 21st. So, Ted and I joke that we have 300 years of available to us now that we're going to be no problems with water damage, because <laughs> we have had 300-year record lows, so <laughs> enough, come on.
0: So you're to- totally safe now. No, of
1: course. <laughs> Global warming, bring it on. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> so, so tell me about your work with the Oregon Wine Growers Association and, and, and kind of why, why that was important to you and, and sort of some of the, some of the things you're working on with them.
1: Oh, well, everything was started. I mean, the the boys up north, they had a handle on this long before we did, because they're maybe a decade ahead of us. But labeling laws, that was so important, and the establishment of AVAs was very important. And then when the Oregon Wine Board came along, we got into really organized marketing, which was a tremendous boom. And now you can see what they do, they go all over the United States. and. I think they're going to Mexico City this at Christmas. Mm-hmm. I know Ted and Terry are going down there with them. So that was that's been big. So the whole just the idea of having an industry and having it organized, and then being able to support our legislative needs through our PACs and so forth, and get legislation done that we needed, it uh, gave us a, an, an instrument, and that's why it was important. It was a way of influencing what we wanted done, mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of just sitting with, well, with hoping something would get mm-hmm. done.
0: In terms of that amount of influence, did you feel like it It was growing as the industry grew? Did you feel like it was hard at the beginning and, and the industry had more sway as it grew? Or did you feel like you had the ear of the, of the people you wanted to have the ear of from a fairly early stage? No, it's,
1: it's much easier now. Mm-hmm. More people involved, more experts involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wine growers in the state come from all walks of life, so we've taken advantage of doctors, lawyers, everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. You know I was just a business guy. It's imagine, imagine running a business, everybody thinks farming, well, it's a business. Mm-hmm. And I see so many people that don't know anything about business. Well, I've rode Community College here, I've had a couple classes just to have people learn about budgeting and how to make bookkeeping work, and it's those small little steps that enable a business to really come up together. So it's more than just the influence of the Oregon Wine Growers Association. It's interacting with each other, helping each other out. And in the beginning there was a lot of that. And there still is, but probably half a dozen growers that I can call immediately and help get help immediately. Still those same guys that I've been with for all these years, but there's a lot of new ones I have no contact with. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer small properties. It's There's some pretty big properties being developed down here now. The other thing that was a nice improvement for us is the Extension Service. We had Phil Van Buskirk originally as a horticulturist. He wasn't a viticulturist, but boy, did he help us out, you know. So since then, we've been able to get actual viticulturists in place. They had them up north, but it was hard to get them down here. We finally got the budget out of WAB and Growers Association to hire a full-time viticulturist down here, and we have an excellent one now. My wife thinks he's excellent because he graduated from the same university she did. Now so. <laughs> well, Alex has been a real boom, because we have so many new growers now and so many large acreages. They, they need help. They need to learn so much and having these experts available at the end of the phone, or even come out and visit with you, it's, it's been a tremendous change. Whereas in years past, there wasn't even the textbooks. You had general viticulture mm-hmm. on the book. Yeah, it's been a big help. Mm-hmm. I remember when I planted my muscat grapes. <clears throat> I was training the little shoots up the trunk to make it up the stake to tr- to form a trunk. And I went out one day, and there was a girdle halfway up the trunk, and the top was dead next to plant over had the same thing and next plant over had the same thing. I called Phil Van Peskirk up. He said, well, I can come in your way, I'll take a look. We couldn't figure it out what the heck had done this to me. And a brand new UC Davis pest management book came out and in the virus section there was a picture of a three corner alfalfa leafhopper girdling a vine and spreading fan leaf virus. I've had those leafhoppers here all this time and. Never had a virus, so I've never had a problem, but once the the vines had the trunks, they couldn't girdle the trunks. Now they girdle the petiole, the leaf, and the leaf falls off. So for the last three years, because we have the red blotch virus going on so bad down here coming out of California nurseries, if I can say that, but that's where they came from in my opinion, it's devastated some new plantings, and they've had to replant, which is not cheap. Mm -hmm. So Oregon State University has had tests in, in this vineyard, traps, We've been collecting three-corner alfalfa leafhoppers here now for three years, and because I'm virus-free, they know that these bugs don't have the virus on them. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so they take them up north to Corvallis, and they put them in a greenhouse with vines that do have the virus. So they're able to prove that the three-corner alfalfa leafhopper was transmitting the virus from plant to plant, because they that that uh, plant that had the virus, put the bug in it, the bug would chew on it, and then they put it in a greenhouse that had no virus, so they proved it. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the scientific names of these particular treehoppers, but they're all in the alfalfa treehopper family. I guess there's two or three different types. But it was kind of neat having all these people coming around getting bugs, (laughs) and this year they found three. I said, you caught them all, we're out. So we were able to supply the bugs they needed to do their research, which was kind of a weird name for getting our Stonefield name out there, but it did. So we did have a virus up on our—we th- have a vineyard down here that used to be called Three Creeks Vineyards, and at the very top they had a, what they called the mudflat. They had a virus in there called leaf curl virus, and the fellow that used to be partners with Ted in the winery sold it to new people from Santa Barbara. And we had a viticulture agent, uh, Marcus Buchanan, and of course Rick Hilton, our bug guy, had them out. And sure enough, they found that the mealybugs bugs were spreading the virus in this block. So we talked the owner into eliminating it, ripping it out and burning it. And then the blocks just below that for several years, we just rogued the plants that showed symptoms and slowly eliminated the problem. Now I'm a little worried because I see the new owner's planted grapes right on top of that block again. Uh-oh. And I don't know how careful you can be, there's always going to be a root somewhere where a mealybug is eating on it that has that virus, and it could respread. Mm-hmm. Other than that, that's another reason I love this valley, where vineyards are so far apart, that you don't have continuous blocks of grapes spreading diseases, mildew even, you know, not just viruses, but I have a, this new fellow was talking about that I haven't met yet, He has a vineyard right next door where the father had died and the son doesn't have any interest. He wants to grow marijuana and hemp. So those blocks of grapes are not getting sprayed, and it's creating a nightmare for this new grower on just across the fence. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I don't have that situation. (laughs) I mean, there's vineyards around, but they're miles around. Mm -hmm. I think the closest one's Bridgeview, and that's two and a half miles away. Mm -hmm. Nice commute I had for 17 years though. (laughs) Now they were, Bridgie was very good to me. Ted Gerber's been a very close friend for all these years. I can remember when I met Ted, they were from the Bay Area also. They, I think they were both went to Hayward State. Mm-hmm. And we met them, his wife was working as a waitress down here at Mr. B's where they served ice cream we wanted ice cream and we got to know her. And we got to talking about sourdough bread. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll bring you up some sourdough bread. He says, bring a lot. So I brought a hundred loaves of sourdough <laughs> bread that I bought for like a dollar a loaf back in those days. And I just gave it to them. And they were selling it all over Tacoma, all over Cave Junction. <laughs> so we were the we were the sourdough bread deliverers for a couple of years. But that helped us to gain friendships, you mm-hmm. know, and to learn about people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the, the Southern Oregon wine industry, kind of at large. What, what, what's different about it? What's special about Southern Oregon and its, and its wine industry?
1: The biggest thing is the variety of grapes we can grow. There's no doubt about that. It's absolutely amazing. I can't remember the exact number, but it's up around 70 different varieties down here that we're growing. Maybe it's 50. I don't know how the real number in my head, but that's a lot different than up north. And it's because of the various climates we have, the various mountain ranges. <clears throat> I think that's definitely the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. The Extension Service having an office here has always been helpful. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, I think they got a business, wine business study going on over at Southern Oregon University now, mm-hmm. and that's helping. Uh, what's different? Hmm.
0: What about challenges that are unique to this area?
1: Frost. Yeah, you know, winter kill and frost have been our big biggest problems. But we've lived through it. We're still here, still making money. <laughs> uh,
0: what about as you look to the future here? You talked about all the, the kind of new large facilities coming in down here. Uh, what do you see as you look ahead uh, ten years into the future for, for for Illinois Valley specifically, for Southern Oregon at large? Kind of any any kind of prognostication you, you might have.
1: So well, I've seen a tremendous growth in what I call virtual wineries, non-existent wineries. Mm-hmm. They have tasting rooms, and that has enabled the crush, some crush facilities to open up. I think they've got three of them here in Southern Oregon now. And it's enabled uh, growers to participate in the sale of wine where there's more money. When I was on the board of directors for Oregon Wine Growers Association, we, every meeting we made a motion. That Slough, grower's licenses to have tasting rooms. Julie Houston in the Eugene area was the main shaker and mover behind that, but she wasn't on the board. And we kept getting voted down because there was more wineries voting than there were growers. And one year, I mean, one meeting, we outnumbered them. We voted it in. And <laughs> it boy, it. we caught hell for a long time. Some wineries, they just really resented us. You know, because guys didn't have to put in the actual structure of the infrastructure and so that enabled a lot of guys to, to participate in the more profitability and grow their businesses better. Since then, however, what had me worried for years, not so much now, but there for a few years there were so many of these grower licenses being issued that they were all trying to sell in the same I-5 market from Ashland to Eugene, and there was also so much shelf space. And they didn't have any distributors. It was harder for these new guys to get distribution. Whereas the old guys, Virgil is in 40 states, Ted's in 40 states, they've had these channels for years. And that's probably what I see in the future is what are they going to do with all these grapes? I'm not in the position to say it's overplanted, but I think it's headed that way. And that's worrisome. Uh, you've seen a lot of big wineries moving into the state. Some of the big boys have really got some bucks. So that could change real quick. But I don't see that happening here in Southern Oregon. It's where the reputation is the biggest is up in the Willamette Valley. And that's mm-hmm. where that investment's happening right now. But there's a fellow, don't know who exactly is behind it. I think a thousand acre vineyard going in in the Roseburg area, that's huge. Mm-hmm. And even down here, there's big vineyards going in, big money moving in. So maybe that'll bring in more resources to, where I don't have to worry about what I just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's always been there. It's Like I said, it's cycles. It's it's hard to a couple years, and then it's easy for a few years. And I guess being in it for so long has made it easier also.
0: You don't have to panic about every cycle.
1: No, because i got a list of 100 win- wineries in there that I've dealt with for 35 years. Like, mm-hmm. I can call people and they know my name, you know, <laughs> whereas if I was new that would be difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'd sell the grapes, they may not want the grapes, but it's nice having the contacts because we've been here so long. Mm-hmm. And of course, meeting the guys that were here before me, they introduced me to all their friends. So. And I don't see so much of that happening anymore. Uh, there's wineries in Southern Oregon I've never even been to some that I want to go to, but I just haven't got around to it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that I make so much wine here, I don't buy much wine. <laughs> we, uh, I don't know if this, I should say this, but I trade wine for Firewood. I don't do labor or anything like that, but I have also donate wine to the art guild in town when they have some kind of festival, or prizes, you know, like the Lions Club, here's some prizes you can give out, Mm -hmm. but the main thing about making my own wine is been able to enter competitions Mm -hmm. and get feedback from judges that know what the hell wine should taste like, you know, and that's been the side of me that's been, since I've backed off doing a lot of vineyard consulting work, I do a lot more winemaking now, but now I've gotten to the point where making too much wine. I mean, I'm legal. I'm making less than 200 gallons a year, but there's only two of us drinking wine in this house. (laughs) (laughs) And my computer went down, so the computer guy who lives down the street came over. Ah, it's fixed. I said, well, what do I owe you? He said, nothing. You're you're a neighbor. I said, how about some wine? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, it works that way. (laughs) I guess it's legal to give it away. I'm not sure. I don't sell it. Sure it is. Keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> Trash wine.
0: What what, what a, the, the vineyard process, the winemaking process, are so different in so many ways. What what, what appeals to you about about each of them? What why why do you enjoy winemaking? Why do you enjoy uh, vineyard It Makes work?
1: me a better grape grower. No doubt about it. Uh, in the early days, I was bringing pinot wine to bridge you at twenty-one sugar, acid point eight. <laughs> uh, the philosophy at Bridgeview's marketing was I want my wine in every grocery store in the United States. He wanted to sell six, seven dollars bottles of wine. So he wasn't looking for high-end fruit. Mm -hmm. He was looking for low-end fruit, Mm -hmm. low-costing fruit. Mm -hmm. At least we met the parameters of the contract, but nowadays I I sell Pinot Noir at twenty-three and a half to twenty-four and a half sugar. And acids are in balance. Uh, By growing it myself and making my own wine I was able to take it to the next step. And when I started tasting my wines compared to wines made at Bridgeview, they were different. Uh, I like mine better, of course, just prejudice, I guess. But, <laughs> but I thought it had to do with I was using better techniques of growing. We started doing things like uh, shoot thinning, leaf stripping, canopy manipulation, which also helped on our disease problems. I used to get bunch rot. Never had powdery mildew here, but the first would get bunch rot in it once in a while. Started stripping leaves, started manipulating the crop load, haven't had bunch rot since. Mm -hmm. Um, Before then, we just sprayed, and they thought that was a good enough job. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're spraying less, so it's costing less, and it's easier to pick the fruit. The fruit's getting sunlight on it, so it's better quality. So everything, just one step, the next step led to the next step. And that winemaking was all along that process. I mean, I've made some disgusting wines that I'll, I'll never do, but I did a couple years ago. You know, I was trying to make a Gewürztraminer like they do down in the Anderson Valley with 17 sugar, 16 sugar. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody's like, well, it's just alcohol. Well, it tasted like hell. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> so you live and learn through winemaking. let see this. When I see those over the vineyard, I tell my workers, you know, you're not working fast enough. He thinks you're dead.
0: <laughs> it's just a joke. We talked a little bit about some. Of the, some, of the, some of this conversation, you've talked a little bit about the the. the the kind of natural tension between the northern part of the state and the southern part of the state the the, the northern has always been the one getting the attention uh, kind of driving the conversation and and obviously more people tell me about the difficulty in kind of uniting the state obviously as part of the wine wine advisory or as as a wine growers association you're you're part of that kind of cohesive unit pulling the state together tell me about the work with that and and, and the the difficulty over the years in keeping this huge huge area of state uh, united uh, behind brand Oregon
1: I'm not sure they are um, there's been a civil war in the South and the North for many, many years. And a lot of the older growers still have, have resentments of not being recognized when they had the quality. Uh, there's some things raising their head now about changing the labeling laws to if you have a Lammoth Valley on the bottle, it's got to be 100% Lammoth Valley grapes. Well, there's a lot of people down here that their business uh, philosophy was based on selling grapes to northern wineries, mm-hmm. and the reason that got started is, as you know, the water from wet years up north there was some terrible years, so they came down here and started buying some of our fruit in the years they needed it. So they changed their law to allow 10% mm-hmm. of non-clamathelly grapes in that appellation. So all these businesses got built up around that, Mm -hmm. and now they're down here saying, no, we're not going to allow those grapes into our Lammoth label. Mm -hmm. So that's raised a lot of arguments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm not so sure there is a cohesiveness anymore. The world of wine, which is now the Morgan Wine Experience, Mm -hmm. I think has gone a long ways to helping. And what helped there is we opened it up to the entire state. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Southern Oregon.
0: It's over in Jacksonville.
1: It is now. It used to be at Del Rio Vineyards Mm -hmm. every year. And it was just Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. But by having the Northern wineries able to enter these festivals, you can taste head-to-head wines from there and here. And that's enabled us to come together quite a bit. Uh, the variety changes. We grow stuff they can't grow. Mm-hmm. So they're able to sell wines that they, they can't grow the grapes because they can buy the grapes from us. So that's brought us closer together. So when I say I'm not sure if it's totally together, I think it's happening, but there's things still tearing us apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that'll always be that way. <laughs> I don't know how you got so lucky with these two. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we have the full show. Yeah. Has it felt like that's ebbed and flowed as well in terms of mm. coming together, g- growing apart, kind of, over the yeah, years?
1: Yeah, like I said about the grower's license. They've created animosity for a while. Um, I think that's gone to the wayside, though. You see so many wine-tasting rooms at Vinners now that... I'm not sure we do have... I think we got two Custom Crush facilities here, Namus and Pallet, I believe. Yeah. I think Maybe I was wrong. I think there's only two. But those have enabled these growers to, to really make some money. Mm-hmm. You know, you make a lot more money off a bottle of wine than you can off a ton of grapes. And the wine doesn't spoil. Mm-hmm. It's not a perishable product. That's part of the nightmare of being a grower at harvest. Where's my pickers? <laughs> i got to get them off now. <laughs> um, I think overall, it's very easy to talk to anybody in this industry, no matter how new or how old you are. It's always been a, a way of communicating to get around the, if there's a problem, or if there is a problem, to talk about the problem. The smoke-taint problem we had last year was huge here in Southern Oregon. Uh, I didn't have a problem with that, but I know growers that did. You know, we tested their grapes, because we tested ours too there was no smoke tape in those grapes that were rejected. But that wasn't Malamette Valley, that was California. Really and that fellow down there, his father almost put a winery here in our valley. So we were kind of helping him along there for a while. <laughs> now I don't know if we want to deal with him anymore. <laughs> um, he's huge in California. He's got a huge, you all can't even say the name of his wine, but his Coastal Pinot Law is selling well. He's buying grapes from these same growers again this year. So maybe not any animosity. Maybe I don't know, there's a couple growers that won't deal with the guy. Mm-hmm. But there's so few markets. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you see as, as you look ahead here for, for yourself at Stonefield? What do, you, what do you kind of hope happens over, over the next few years? You, you mentioned coming up on your 73rd birthday. What's, what's next for you?
1: Uh, I say 10 more years in this business for me. And then I'd like to sell off the Pinot Gris block and the rental that's on it and the pond that's on it, get that out of my hair. Then I'd have less to do. <laughs> Keep this little three-acre vineyard here for Pinot and Muscat. Um, my wife talked me into, when I ripped out the Gewurztraminer and put in more Muscat, I put in two rows of the experimental grapes that I've been growing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Things like Pinot Meunier and Syrah and Tempranillo, Pinot Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet, things that are not commercially viable here, but they're commercially viable to me because they go into my winery. And I might end up with just those two rows of grapes eventually. (laughs) When we moved here, we couldn't decide whether to buy a big old ranch. And we bought five acres to start with. And then we bought five more and then we bought five more. We ended up with nine pieces of property here in the valley, 30 of which are all attached here. So it's enabled us to slowly sell off a piece without having to move. I've sold off one, two, three rentals, and I got 25 acres left in five tax lots, one of which has a vineyard in a house, my house, another one, two wood lots, nothing been, playing, no, nothing been done to them at all. So I can sell off piecemeal mm-hmm. and still live in our forever house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I hope it's our forever house. I hope we're healthy enough to die here and not have to go someplace else. But that's kind of our plan. Slowly diverse ourselves with property we don't need. I gathered the property around me because this is not farm zone land. This is residential land. In fact, all the, wood, all the land I bought was woodlot resource. And I had to get variances to build on it. But I don't have the right to farm. That law does not apply to me. So I can't, I don't use bird, I used to use bird cannons, propane cannons, because I had no neighbors. My neighbor's neighbor was, I, I could never hear him or see him or anything. So I, <laughs> but as the neighbors got closer and closer, like one night I said to my wife, I said, we gotta move, I see porch lights, <laughs> you fool, they're your runners. <laughs> <laughs> so being able to settle see, off piecemeal is gonna enable us to stay here for probably until we need help, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I played around with the idea of, of making wine commercially. I'm not a salesman. I have a difficult time selling grapes. <laughs> I mean, just having the nerve to go do it. Mm-hmm. That's why when, when I went into business, I went into transportation, distribution, warehousing. My minor was world business, which has been helpful nowadays, but I didn't go into marketing, I didn't go into sales. <laughs> I wore a three-piece suit for 10 years. <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> yeah, less so now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what about as you look at the at the Oregon wine industry at large, both r- locally, the, the kind of the Rogue Valley area, and, and Oregon at large? What do you see as you look ahead uh, five, 10 years in the future? It's going to be
1: huge. It's going to grow. It's, there's not going to be anything to keep Oregon down. It's, it's showing itself annually. I mean, every year, growth, 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 and not only is there growth, but there's good quality behind that growth. Um, prices are a little on the high side for wine, but it doesn't seem to be detrimental to sales. That could happen if we go through another 2008 or something like that, but the quality's there. The magic's in the bottle. It's worth what you pay for. I. I don't see it becoming as big as California ever, there's just not that much land, but the thing that I think is going to hinder growth of wine growing and is urban sprawl, which Oregon's kind of got a handle on. Uh, that's one of the things the Wine Growers Association did, is they protected the hillsides, uh, didn't want development on them, grow on the flatland, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. build your houses down there. Um, so. There have been things that we've done to help us grow in the future, set ourselves up to grow in the future. Uh, I've never really been a shaker and a mover like some of the big boys, you know. They, when I think of things that Erath did and Adelheim did and people like that, Fonzie, they, t- they started with nothing. And look what they built it into, with the help of everybody else, of course. But they were the shakers and the mo- movers, those original nine guys that got together after Hillside, Hillcrest Vineyard started. Boy. Richard Summers. I remember when I met Richard Summers, it was in the men's room in Eugene. <laughs> Ted Gerber introduced me to him, and he's eating peanuts, so he shook hands with me with his left hand. First time I ever had a left-handed head shake from a guy. <laughs> he's eating peanuts, he didn't want to change hands. Guy was a crack-up, he was so fun to be around. And that's the great thing about most of these people, you know. They come from such diverse backgrounds, but they're just fun to be around. Gosh, I think Ponzi worked for Disneyland at one time.
0: Yeah, he was an Imagineer.
1: Yeah, my father's best friend was an electrical engineer at Disneyland when it opened. Small world. (laughs) It's amazing how many people from California are up here. It really is.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm glad I did it. I mean, Anderson Valley would be probably more rural than we are here. (laughs) Sonoma, I love Sonoma though. It's huge though, Mm -hmm. it's wall to wall people. Mm -hmm. I don't even go back there anymore, I don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. It's getting that way everywhere, but here it's, we still got cougars and bears walking the vineyards and in fact, just had a thing down the street, uh, cougar got uh, the goat and now everybody's got their goats pinned up again. (laughs) We're living on the wild side, but I've seen cougars run through my vineyards. Mm-hmm. I had a bear come in one year. I had several bears. One year this bear came in, and it was in my muscat block. And you'd see five vines in a row with no grapes left on them. They, they use their teeth to pull the grapes off. It's like the picking machine. Mm-hmm. The cluster stays there, the stems. And then there's a pile of poop. <laughs> and then five more vines, and there's another pile of poop. It goes right through them. And I said, what do I what do? I, do? I don't, have, don't have a bear fence. I can't keep a bear out of here. So a friend of mine O'Brien told me about his ammonia balloon bombs. You take a, put a, half a cup of ammonia in a kids' party balloon mm-hmm. and you blow it up with your air compressor so you don't get it in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Tie it off and spread some peanut butter or some honey on it and go hang it on the fence for the bears coming in. I was down there one night and I heard this oh, and off it went and it never came back. And I found the balloon all busted apart and it smelled like ammonia. So now we know what to do with bears. I don't know. Ted told you, I think they've taken three bears so far this season. You know, bears are a big problem and they eat a lot of grapes. That's why I was telling you about five in a poop. Five in a poop, they just go through a vineyard like crazy. it 's
0: amazing.
1: We have uh, Taylor Sausage here, is probably nationally famous. And he does all the bears for us. He puts them in the sausages, and so we're lucky to have him. Another great fine resource, <laughs> grape grow resource, I mean. And Terry Taylor, his son, has recently gotten involved with grape growing. And I said, when are you going to get your label? I said, you've got a storefront right here in town. You can put it right here on the shelf. And he's thinking pretty serious about doing it. He's more interested in raising his pigs right now, though.
0: has got to have priorities after, yeah. after all, yeah. So. So if, if you met someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today, what would your words of wisdom for them be?
1: Uh, knowledge first, then find the, the property. And at that time when you find yourself a piece of property, you better start looking for a market. All the rest of that stuff, which we had to learn the hard way, is readily available now in books and people can help you out. But those are the three things. Know what the hell you're getting into, and how to do it, the basics. Knowing where to do it, where, where should I grow this stuff, and then that, that's the three most important things. Yeah. Where do you
0: sell it, right? Where do you sell it,
1: yeah. I mean, I remember sitting at Petro Winery in Heelsburg on the deck tasting wine, and here comes a dump truck full of grapes going down Highway 101. We ordered another glass of wine, here came that same dump truck back with the same grapes on it, going the other way. He passed three or four times. So I asked the guy, I said, what's going on? He's, he's trying to sell his grapes. They're <laughs> in the truck, in the dump truck. And down there they have what they call sugar shacks. You, are you familiar with those? You have to go through a sugar shack to have your grapes tested for sugar, acid, and weight. Okay. It's like a weight station. Mm-hmm. And that way you can give the slip to the winery. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys says he's trying to sell the grapes, and the other guy said, "No he's looking for the sugar shack. <laughs> he can't find it so marketing yeah you better before you put it in the bucket or take it off the vendor. you better have a market ready for it because it it'll spoil real quick That's incredible <laughs> old stories
0: as as you look back uh, what is there something that you're a, mom, a moment or accomplishment that you're most proud of something that in your in your wine career that you're that you look back on fondly.
1: I got the best of show at the Newport Wine Festival for a Cabernet Sauvignon vi- uh, bottle of wine. I got the grapes from uh, Pheasant Hill, Laura Lopstitch's vineyard. And I had to do a acid reduction on it because the pH was so high.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I did it. And I did ten times too much. So then I had to go back and add acid. So I added acid back to it, and it tasted pretty darn good. But I didn't write down what I did, so I can't recopy it. <laughs> that's the biggest accomplishment on the wines part of it. And the grapes. Getting $2200 a ton when you're best price I ever got. That's probably the biggest accomplishment. Wish we could get it every year. <laughs> now I've, I've been selling grapes to the same winery now for quite a few years, and I'm very happy with the price of grapes I get. Uh, if you look at the state average, I'm probably below the state average, but my philosophy is as you make an agreement with a winery, you're partners, mm-hmm. and you don't go chasing the highest contract every year because you're going run out of wineries and run out of friendships. Mm-hmm. So when you stay with one winery at a little common agreed to price, you go through the bad years and the good years together mm-hmm. and without asking I want more money, you know. It's a secure market, it's a local market. And believe me, having to drive grapes out of this valley is not a fun thing. Uh, I remember going to August Cellars had to spend the night and come back the next day, you know. It's it's just too far. Mm-hmm. So I started hiring trucks and that digs into your profits. So I don't know, it seems to me like Maybe I should have said the best thing that's happened to me is being able to sell most of my grapes right here in the Illinois Valley. Because I've sold to everybody that's been here. Mm. I didn't sell the Wind Ridge because they went to Crush and Crush. Uh, never sold to Valley View. <laughs> no mark real well, but they just... Yeah, I guess Edenville, Siskiyou, Forest, Bridgeview... I guess all the rest of them are up north. I'm live certified here. So I remember uh, Ted Castile was looking for some live certified grapes. He was waiting for his Pinot Griefield to come into production. And he called Ted Gerber and Ted said, well, Bill Wendover's live certified. I got to sell him grapes for a couple of years, but it worked out great because I put them in Ted's boxes and Ted shipped them on his truck up there. (laughs) That works out well. Well, Yeah, really, (laughs) real well. So that's probably there's several things I'm look, look back on that I'm proud of.
0: <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> this has been quite a show here we've gotten during this interview.
1: And this little dog, we only had her a little over a year, and boy, she is not afraid of anything. <laughs> Call her Miss Dizzy.
0: <laughs> Shelby's over here. Guarding g- in the camera. <laughs> well, it's all the questions that I ha- have for you today, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered?
1: Gosh, we suffered so much. <laughs> I didn't realize we were going to go into this much detail. <laughs> Not that I want to hide okay, <laughs> oh. no, it. It's something I've been proud to have done. I'm glad I'm still doing it. And I can't imagine me doing anything else. Ever. Sure glad I didn't go to Chicago.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so are we. We got, to, this is where we got to meet you down here. This is excellent. All right. Thank you so much for your time today, for you your you. answers. i okay. go ahead and let you off the hook here. Off the hook, off huh? Off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.